This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. Today, your host, Michael Green, speaks with Andrew Dillon, who holds a number of executive roles at the AFL, including general counsel. Andrew began as the first in-house lawyer for the AFL back in 2000. From drug scandals to unprecedented television and internet deals, from the introduction of the AFLW to navigating COVID, Andrew has seen an incredible amount of change, growth and controversy over the past 20 plus years. And with round one of the season kicking off tonight, it's the perfect time to delve into all these topics and more. We recorded this episode in December 2021, just prior to the Omicron variant taking off in Victoria. And Andrew's comments throughout the interview regarding COVID, vaccination, pending court cases, and even a potential AFL team in Tasmania reflect that timing. We've now engaged some internal AFL people to do like the full business case. And we've committed to the Tasmania Premier that we'll have a position on Tasmania by the, hopefully by the middle of next year, when we look at a new CBA, Collective Bargaining Agreement for the players, which sets out their minimum terms and conditions of employment and sets the salary cap, but also importantly, the funding model for all of the other clubs and works out, well, how are we gonna fund the operations of those clubs as well. So by the middle of next year, we'll be, have, you know, hopefully have a position on Tasmania, whether it's a 19th licence or potentially a club saying that they'll uh, commit to play a number of games there or potentially the status quo. guest this morning on Lives in the Law is Andrew Dillon. Andrew is General Counsel and Executive General Manager of Football Operations for the AFL, the Australian Football League. Good morning, Andrew. Morning, Michael. Andrew, you're one of six kids. Your dad was a lawyer. Did you always want to be a lawyer? It was always in the back of my mind, Michael, because I spent a lot of time in dad's office and as a kid going in there. But it was one of those ones where I, at school, I was actually more mathematically and science inclined, so I wasn't necessarily going to go down that path. But when I did okay in my year 12 and got the marks, I may had the call, I wanted to do commerce, and then I got the marks to get into law. So I did the law degree. Um, after that, once I'd done the law degree, the dad didn't give me a lot of advice in terms of what I was doing. But one thing was, well, if you've gone and done the law degree, you should do your articles. And so sort of went from there. But you did a combined law commerce. That's right. Did you see yourself as a practising lawyer in the future or maybe going in the business stream or...? Yeah, I think the whole way through university, I, I did better in my commerce subjects. I, you know, I, I was sort of that way inclined. I did um, my sort of vacation work in accounting firms rather than legal firms. So that was sort of in the back of my mind I was always going to go down that path. And it was just having... When I got to do the articles, it was there where I actually really enjoyed working in a law firm. Your articles were with Cause, Cause Chambers Westgarth, big commercial firm. What was it like doing articles in such a big organisation? Was there one-on-one interaction with a partner or with mentors? Well, the way Cause did it, and I'm, I think a lot of the firms did it that way, I'm, I think it's a bit different now, but we there was we got to rotate in three-month blocks, so four three-month blocks around the, <clears throat> the year, and I did, um, I did one in industrial relations, I did another one in banking and finance, um, litigation, and then I was in, in a more commercial legal one. The one that I really enjoyed was banking and finance. And it wasn't necessarily the banking and finance law that I liked, but it was just the group of people that were um, my bosses in that area I got on really well with. And so when 
the rotations finished, you then sort of got to apply for one of the departments and I was lucky enough um, to put my hand up for banking and finance and get that. And you stayed at Coors for three years, had a break, went overseas and did some travel. That's right. But after three years, a relatively short period, you go in-house and work with Village Roadshow. Why, I'm interested why you did it because you're with a large first-tier law firm in Coors. I'm quite sure you had prospects of being a partner there one day, knowing you. Why did you go in-house? Why did you leave that, those possibilities with a large, prestigious law firm? Yeah, I think it was looking at the partners there and the, and the hours they worked and the way they did it. And, I, and also the, the, my two direct bosses who I'd worked with had gone over, they'd gone in-house in the time that I was overseas. So when I came back, it was actually a different place. It was still some really good people I learned a lot from, but I sort of tried to project myself 10, 20 years into the future. And is that what I wanted for myself? And I wasn't 100% sure. The, the people I knew that had gone in-house were really enjoying the work. And in the back of my mind, I thought I'd still stay at cause for at least another three or four years and get more experience. But this job came up at um, Village Roadshow and I, there was like five dot points of what they were looking for in terms of experience. And I, I ticked four of the five, so I thought, oh, look, I'll, I'll throw my hat in the ring and see how I go. And then I was successful there. And um, really glad I did it because I think that set me up for future roles. But it was, uh, you know, if I was talking to other people, I think I probably should have stayed at course for a little bit longer, but the Village Roadshow opportunity was probably just too good to pass up at the time. When you went to Village Roadshow, did they have a, an existing legal department that you became a member of and you learnt from other people there? Or were you setting up their legal... So there was a there was a general counsel, a guy by the name of Simon Phillipson, who's still at Village Roadshow, and he'd started there about twelve months before, and he'd been the first in-house lawyer for them as the general counsel. I then came in as his right-hand person, for want of a better term. So I learned directly from him, but a lot of the time he was travelling a lot as well. So it was sort of a bit of a baptism of fire as well. So you're, I was on my own a lot. We had some really good external lawyers who were used as well, but it was a so it was a good balance of autonomy, but also some senior people to learn from, but a lot different to a law firm where in a law firm you could walk down a hallway and have 20 different people who could help you out with something. This one was more a bit of a bit more sink or swim. How, how are things set up? Well, at least in Village Roger, how is it as though the business side of the business is a client and you're the lawyer to that client or are you a part of the whole general swim of the place? What's the structure of it? So when I started at Village, because we were small, it was we were like a, a service to the whole of the business and Village at that stage was quite a diverse business because it did um, cinema exhibition but also cinema production, also distribution. They owned theme parks and they had joint ventures all around the world as well. So we were like a service to each of the different areas. As it got as it's got bigger and the legal departments got bigger, then they transplanted lawyers actually into the different business units. And that was, I'm pretty sure that's how it would be operating now. And in particular, say, cinema or film production, it's very much a legalistic, tax-driven way of doing business, yeah. Were you expected to have expertise across contractual issues, obviously, businesses mainly contract work, but maybe litigation if there's if they're being sued or Yeah. So at Village, like one of the a lot of the work I did was um sort of joint ventures. So, you know, basic contracts and a lot of property law. As I as I started, we actually Village owned a lot of real estate. So a lot of the cinemas that they owned, they owned the freehold as well. But they spun all the freehold off into a property trust. There was a lot of property work when I started and then joint ventures. And so they were the main things. If litigation came up, that would be one that we'd brief out externally to Herbert Gear and Rundle, which was the uh, the firm that we were using then. So in 2000, you start your dream job. No doubt a dream job because uh, being the first in-house counsel with the AFL, 
you've had a long football career yourself in the amateurs here in Melbourne with a lot of success. Was it your dream job to go to the AFL? I think at the time it was just an amazing opportunity. It actually has turned out to be a, a great place to work and I'm still there 21 years later, so it must be pretty good. But I think at the time, you look at the AFL now and it's a massive business and um, big turnover. At the time when I started, we were in the bowels of the Southern Standard, the MCG. The AFL employed about 70 people. So it was it was big, but it wasn't as big as it is now. So it was a bit of a it was a bit of a jump, but it was something, a subject matter I'm really interested in and I thought would be, you know, a good fun place to work. And it certainly turned out to be that. And you were the only lawyer at that time? Yeah, I was the so I was employed at the start into the commercial operations department. So the general manager there was a guy by the name of Ben Buckley, who's gone on to run football federations or soccer Australia and also the he's the current president of North Melbourne. He employed me but generally as a as a lawyer working in the commercial in the commercial department only, sort of to work with him on sponsorship contracts, licensing agreements. And that was an easy sort of segue from what I'd been doing at Village Roadshow. At the time also we had the AFL had an external lawyer, a guy by the name of Jeff Brown, who's quite well known and he's a he's potentially about to become the president of Collingwood, you know, sort of 20 years later. So Jeff was almost like an in-house general counsel, but he had he had his own firm and he didn't work. He only, In sport, he worked exclusively for the AFL, but he also had lots of other clients as well. And you had a close relationship with him and he helped you into the job, so to speak. Yeah, and it was, it was really good because, I mean, for him, an in-house lawyer coming into the AFL probably meant potentially less legal fees coming to his firm, but he understood that the AFL needed a, an in-house lawyer just to help with some of the things that you wouldn't necessarily want to brief out. So he was great, taught me all the things about the rules and regulations and, and even just the way sort of the politics of the AFL and how that all worked, as well as being um, unbelievably commercially astute. So there, there was a few, definitely a few things I learned from him. Can I just establish from a lawyer's point of view, what is the AFL? Is it a private company owned by shareholders, limited by shares? Is it a company limited by guarantee? Is it a cooperative, an unincorporated association? What is it? Yeah, so the, the AFL is a company limited by guarantee, which means you, we don't have shareholders, but there's um, members. And there's now, when I started, there were 16 members, which were the 16 AFL clubs. Well, actually, the members are appointees of the club. So the actual members are the individuals who are the presidents or the chairs of those clubs. The way the constitution of the AFL is set up is that uh, all of the clubs who are the members or the appointees of the members, they've put basically all the powers to run the league in the hands of an independent board, which is the commission, and they've only reserved three powers for themselves, the clubs, and they are to um, bring a club into the competition, to terminate a club licence to operate in the competition, or for a club to relocate from its current base. So, and then, oh, sorry, and the fourth one is to appoint the directors or the commissioners. So, all of the other powers reside in the commissioners. That was sort of done in the early 1980s, uh, and that was one of the things actually Jeff Brown was um, leading on back in the day. So it's a company limited by guarantee. Who are the, who are the guarantors? And I assume it's a nominal amount they guarantee. Yeah, it's like a, I think it's like a dollar each. Yeah. So it's a, it's a nominal amount, and then and all the clubs then have a license agreement under which they compete in the competition of the Australian Football League. How does the Australian Football League see itself? It has a dual role, hasn't it? It's the custodian of the game, and it's also obviously a large commercial organisation. How does it see itself? How does it see its role? How does it see its functions? How does it balance those roles and functions? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. The way we look at it is that it's the the elite game and it's a men's competition, but, you know, in the last five or six years, women's competition, which is growing commercially as well, that's the revenue driver. And so the revenue comes in 
to the AFL running the elite competition and then we use that to distribute the money back to the club so that the players can get paid and staff can get paid but also use that to invest in game development. So the South Australian Footy League and the Western Australian Football League are independent of the AFL whereas all the other state leagues are subsidiaries of the AFL. So we provide direct funding to Sandful and Waffle and also the five um, five other state mm-hmm. and territory associations. Mm-hmm. So, But we also see that if you don't invest in game development, then you don't get the fans that are going to watch the game and then drive revenue into the future. And it's not all about revenue, but we know that someone who's a participant who either plays, umpires, volunteers or coaches, they're six or seven times more likely to attend an AFL game than someone who doesn't. So it's it's what you have to do as the keeper of the code, but it also makes business sense to invest. Does that ever throw up conflicts? And if there is a conflict, where does a lawyer stand? Because I assume you still hold a practising certificate. Yes. And therefore you're an officer of the Supreme Court. I could see potential conflicts there between being custodian, guardian of the code, whatever, and generating commercial uh, or generating revenue yeah. for a business. Yeah, well, I think what we do, and we talk about optimising revenue rather than maximising revenue, So, and that's always a, it's always a balance, and it's not necessary just because we're the keeper of the code, but I think just for to continue your social licence to operate, you've got to be really careful and think about you know, revenue opportunities, and we face that with alcohol sponsorship, fast food, wagering, and they're, they're all things that are, and the commission ultimately, and that's why it's the best model that the we I think that the AFL's got with an independent board who can actually step aside from the parochial interests of a club and also just weigh up the pros and cons of all those decisions. And so, and that's why I think, yeah, as I said, I think that's the right governance structure to have. In your 21 years at the AFL, an enormous amount has happened. You've just mentioned AFLW, but there have been there's issues around drugs and drug policy, of course. Currently, COVID um, issues around concussion and head injuries, huge broadcasting deals. And of course, when you started, the internet was relatively a novelty. It wasn't what it is today. You did the first deal, internet deal with Telstra on behalf of the AFL. Can you tell us a bit about that deal and what it looks like compared to the internet today? Yeah, so that was way back in sort of 2001. And we'd, we'd done a TV rights deal with Foxtel Channel 9 and Channel 10. So it was the first time actually the TV rights had gone away from Seven for a long time. Uh, and the internet was in its infancy, so but part of the deal that we did with the broadcasting rights and Jeff Brown led it, and then after that, um, Ben Buckley, who was the head of commercial, was sort of leading the negotiations, and then Gil McLaughlin, who had also started around the same time as I, as me, and then we were then tasked with negotiating an internet rights deal with Telstra. And as you say, the internet was uh, definitely in its infancy. The iPhone was six years away from being invented. So we were guessing a lot about how we'd do it. But the biggest part of that was trying to sort of project into the future, but also make sure that you, we res- reserved the right right, so that we weren't selling something to Telstra that we'd already sold to nine or ten. And the structure of that deal is still relatively much, you know, the, the actual Telstra agreement that we're dealing with now is still a variation of that deal that we did back in uh, 2001. Is it still only Telstra or with the, what appear to me to be hundreds if not thousands of internet platforms that exist, do you have deals with a whole lot of platforms? So, yeah, we've only just recently, so Telstra's had the, had the exclusive sort of internet rights for a period of time and only in the, in the most recent deal that we did, well, probably about... 10 years ago, and because Telstra's a part owner of Foxtel, KO, which is the streaming business of Foxtel, they got sort of concurrent rights with Telstra, and they've now taken the live rights exclusively, and Telstra only in the last sort of six months have given those live rights up um, so that KO hold the live streaming rights. 
Channel 7 have got limited streaming rights only for the grand final. But other than that, but interestingly for us, with when Telstra gave up the live streaming rights, which is on the AFL website, we thought traffic would go down, but instead it's actually gone up 35% because we've invested in different types of content, so sort of more behind the scenes and things like that, and it's actually worked really well with uh, with the people who are watching. And at the same time, KO's subscriptions are going through the roof, so it's sort of worked out quite well for everyone. Um, quite amazing, Andrew. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around what it all means, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what it really means, in general terms, I guess what you're saying is it is booming on the internet. Yeah, and, look, and, and potentially I think COVID's had a fair bit to play with that because people have been at home. So with the AFL keeping on going and, you know, horse racing and, and the NRL, I think that was uh, really important for people when they were sort of, you know, particularly in Victoria, locked down for long periods of time. So we have seen viewership go up. So it's been really good for, for Seven and for Foxtel slash KO. So we're actually coming, even though we're coming out of what's been a really tough two years, we're actually in a pretty good position, we think, going forward. Are you aware if that's the, the case worldwide with sport, with sport in Europe, sport in the States, sport in Asia, with COVID, have maybe viewership gone up everywhere? That's, that's my understanding, particularly when, particularly in the jurisdictions where you weren't able to have crowds. And if you had, and then I think a little bit though did depend on what your sort of broadcast deal was. So if you've got a, a really limited broadcast deal, so like say the English Premier League, which had really high viewership you know, rates already, they probably didn't have as far to go. But I know the NFL had been sort of slowly sort of on a downward trajectory, but in the last couple of years it's um, it's ticked up as well. And what about the future? Do Has anyone got a handle on how that might work out in the future? May um, live attendances go down and people, our habits may have changed and we will prefer to be watching things live streamed or on television? Yeah, again, that's a really good question. It's something that we grapple with all the time because the 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 viewership or the sitting at home watching it on your you know 80 inch screen can be an amazing experience and the, and the broadcasters do a great job of it and it takes out a lot of the hassles of potentially attending things that are live but my view is particularly with AFL it is a sport that is best viewed live and that's something that we've the AFL's always prided itself on which is the attendance it's our number one metric and it's something that we really focus on and on coming out of the pandemic, we want to, you know, have a really big splash and we're going to have, you know, five massive games in Melbourne, all standalone, and we're hoping to get the highest, you know, round attendance that we've ever had, So, which is, which is a tick over 400,000 people across the nine games. So it's a real focus for us and we want to make things as easy as possible and you want people to feel safe and you want them to really enjoy themselves at the game and that's going to be a focus for us, you know, particularly next year but going forward as well because... The other thing is, and having watched games over the last couple of years where there aren't, a, where there isn't a crowd, it's not it's not as good an experience watching on TV as well. So the broadcasters actually want they want people at home watching, but they also want people at the ground because it gives a better viewing experience. Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city. This stunning hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar. The perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting. More information can be found on their website, themelbournemap.com.au. Andrew, drug issue is a huge issue, or drug policy, should I say, in all the sports around the world, not just for the AFL. Can you explain the structure to me which so maybe starts at the bottom of the structure, I'm going to put a player, 
then I've got a club, then I've got the AFL. Within Australia, we had ASADA, Australian Society Sports and Anti-Doping Sports and Anti-Doping, yeah. And then above that, there's the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. How did that all fit together from, for the AFL and for an individual player? Yeah, so WADA, and I'll maybe start at the top rather than, and so WADA being, yeah, the World Anti-Doping Agency, that there's a, there's a international code that under, oh, and that came into effect in the early 2000s. And that code is every government around the world has agreed that their sports will adopt that code. Or actually, say every government except for the US, because their professional sports aren't signatories, but uh, I'll come back to that. So the Australian government said that all of our sports will sign up to the, the, the World Anti Doping Code. Can I just interject there? And the Australian government can do that and do that with confidence because it, it'll say to the codes, if you do not sign up, you will not get any funding from us. Yeah, it's, it's almost as binary as that. Yeah. And because the AFL and NRL or any other sports we play in stadiums that are publicly funded on Crown land, are, have not-for-profit status, there's, there is leverage and the government haven't really had to use that. We, going back to 2005, which was the first code when we were looking to sign up to it, there were some concerns that the AFL had in relation to the list of prohibited substances and the mandatory sanctions that came with those prohibited substances. And mainly they were, well, in particular, the focus was around marijuana. And there was a concern that there were players who might take marijuana socially, end up testing positive in a game and getting banned for two years. So we were holding out trying to negotiate with the World Anti-Doping Authority to have, because we had a separate code that deals with that. But the World, you know, the world Agency, so run by a guy, a guy called David Howman, who was a New Zealander, came in and said, "We, I can't give any chop-outs to any sport because once I give one to you, then I'm open for every other sport in the world to try and negotiate. So eventually, or ultimately, we signed up to the code and have been a signatory to the code. And at that stage, we did that via ASADA, who are now called Sports Integrity Australia. Every five years, it's reviewed the code. So for the first sort of three or four iterations, we a signatory to the code via um, Sports Integrity Australia or ASADA. And in the most recent iteration, the AFL's become the first professional sports league in the world to actually have it be a direct signatory to WADA. So we still deal with SIA. They do all of our testing and they do our results management. So if we have a positive case, they help us manage that. But we also have a direct link now into WADA as a direct signatory. The way the players are then bound to the code is that when they sign their standard playing contract or when they nominate for the draft, they sign a registration form saying that they'll abide by the AFL's rules and regulations and they'll sign the standard playing contract. In the standard playing contract, again, they say they'll abide by the AFL's rules and regulations and one of the, under the AFL rules, the anti-doping code is deemed to be part of that. So that's we, we lock them in via the standard playing contract. And therefore, they're bound by uh, by the wider regulations. Yeah. And one of the things that's happened with the most recent iteration of the code, which is going back to what our, some of our reservations when we started, was the some would say draconian mandatory penalties for marijuana, for example. In the most recent iteration, now if you test positive to marijuana on match day, it's not a two or a four year suspension; it's a four week suspension. Changing uh, social mores. That's right. So that sets us up to talk about probably the biggest issue that football faced in any of our lifetimes, which was the uh, drug scandal involving the Essendon Football Club. Stripping away all of the publicity and the sensation that went with it and still Still hovers around it, yep. From a legal point of view, what were the essential elements of that? In the end with Essendon, what we had to do 
with Asada at the time was try and just work out what had gone on there, what had happened. You know, the original, it wasn't a whistleblower, but the was a, a former player when he'd finished sort of started talking about injections that he'd had and wasn't really sure what, they, what he'd been injected with. We then had a sort of a six-month investigation with Asada to try and work out what had gone on. They produced a very long and detailed report, which is currently the even now, eight years down the track, is the subject matter of an FOI application, which has been dealt with in, I think, the federal court maybe today or tomorrow. Really? Yeah. Should have interviewed you, Andrew, in a couple of days' time. Oh, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. But so we eventually got that report and it was, but what we were looking at that stage was how we were going to deal with Essendon, the club, because we were coming into the finals in 2013. So we ended up charging Essendon Footy Club with conduct unbecoming. And then also their senior coach at the time, their general manager of football, an assist, senior assistant coach and their um, chief medical officer. We had an initial hearing. It was in August 2013, so leading into the finals. Preliminary hearing. It was a hearing before the commission. They were going to determine it. And then over two or three days, an outcome was negotiated with the club and the coach and the head of football and the assistant coach. And just remind us, what was, what was that outcome? Well, Essen Footy Club, so they weren't able to compete in the finals. They were fined a couple of million dollars and they lost um, their first round draft pick, first and second round draft picks that year and also a um, first and second round the year after and got a draft pick back or something like that. So it was a massive penalty for Essendon. And then the coach, James Hurd, was suspended for 12 months. The head of football was about six months and then the senior assistant coach was fined $30,000. And what about the individual players? I mean, players also had a 12-month? Well, well, at that stage, at first, the, the way the AFL looked at it was as we assessed the evidence from Asada from the report, there wasn't enough in our mind at that stage to charge the individual players. Cause so that was the position we took as... Asada looked at it and they talked with WADA. They then ended up, and because we sort of have to work in lockstep with them, they wanted to serve charges on all of the individual players. And so that was a couple of years later that 34, not all of the, there was 44 players on the list, 34 of the players got charged under the WADA code. They then went to the AFL's anti-doping tribunal and the AFL anti-doping tribunal found that the players had probably been injected but didn't find the players guilty of a breach of the code. Why was that? Because of, they didn't know? The yeah, that's knowledge? right. And they'd, they'd in, in the view of the AFL anti-doping tribunal, they'd done everything they could. They'd tried to find out what was going on. They'd asked the questions. They'd been told that everything was WADA compliant and that was the view that the tribunal came to. WADA and ASADA then appealed that decision to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is they had the ability then, they could have appealed to an AFL anti-doping tribunal or the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is sort of set up under the WADA auspices. And that was heard a little bit later at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. They reversed the decision at the first instance and all the players were rubbed out for, the 34 players were rubbed out for 12 months. By that stage, because a few years had passed, I think there was only 12 current AFL players at that time. The other 22 had retired or been delisted. But those players, even if you were playing at a lower level, weren't able to play football. And there were players who were in coaching roles, admin roles at clubs who had to stand aside for that 12-month period as well. Can I just go back to the Freedom of Information application, which you say is being made at the moment in front of the federal court? Who's making the application and for what reason? Well, it's an interested individual who has um, 
has got a view that uh, information should be made public. So he's got he's got no vested interest. He's not linked to Essendon. He's not linked to any of the individual players. But he's just someone who's taken an interest in the proceedings, and he's um, sort of been trying to get this information for the last eight years. What's this spot? Now, Andrew, coming back to your role with the AFL, General Counsel, Executive General Manager of Football Operations, what does that cover? So the the General Counsel role encompasses all of our commercial legal work, our regulatory legal work. Also, within that department, we have all of our insurance and risk management sits there and all of the oh I've got there's the person that's my general manager of legal, he differently to me. He spent 25 years in a law firm, was a partner and came across about four years ago. Can I just break in? So the le- the legal department now, it started with one person, yeah. you, yeah. 2001. What is it now? It's a good question. So we've got a general manager of legal, we've got two senior legal counsel and then another two lawyers working underneath those two. So we've got five, oh no, actually, and then there's a third lawyer who also works across community football. We've then got, so that's the legal team. Then Underneath the general manager of his general manager of legal and regulatory, we've then got a head of insurance who's also a lawyer. We've got an OHS manager and we've got a risk manager as well. So it's a much bigger department than when it started. We've also got within the legal area, we've got what we call our integrity function, and that's headed up by a guy by the name of Tony Kane, who's a former homicide squad detective. He came across to the AFL actually just after the Essendon matter, so in 2013, 2014. So he's been with us for a while and he looks after investigations, intelligence, drug testing and security as well, so all the security at our stadiums. Pre-COVID, he had a team of about 14 or 15, but we've, as part of the changing our workforce post-COVID, he's um, restructured and he's got, a, he's got six people working with him and uh, two of them are former police members and then a couple of other sort of administrative staff and people with backgrounds in security. So that's sort of the the legal part of the role. And then in football operations, I've got four direct reports. So there's um, Brad Scott, who's just started, and former North Melbourne coach, and he's looking after the sort of the men's side of the game. So he looks after umpiring, laws of the game, match review tribunal, and also all the list management and player movement rules. We've got a general manager of competitions, a lady by the name of Laura Kane, who's just come across to us from North Melbourne. She's a she's got a legal background as well, and she looks after a, yeah, competition operations. So the running of the AFL, the AFLW, VFL, and VFLW competition. So just making sure basically all the logistics work. And she's got a team of about five or six underneath her. We've also got in the footy operations team a head of mental health, which is a woman by the name of Dr Kate Hall, who's a, she's also a university professor, but she works with us four days a week looking after mental health across the men's and women's senior competitions, but also importantly in our talent pathways. And then the last report I've got is um, Nicole Livingston, who's our head of uh, general manager of women's football. So she works with Laura Kane across the AFLW, but she's also really focused on making sure that community women's football is working well and the talent pathways for women's football are working as well. Therefore, do you see yourself still as a lawyer or do you see yourself really more as a manager, commercial executive? It's a bit of both, but the general counsel role is really important to me and and it's actually under the AFL rules, it actually has got a number of um, specific powers. So it's something that I'm really cognizant of um, in my role that whilst I am a football operations executive, the general counsel role is really important and I've got to make sure that I, you know, that there's a clear delineation between when I'm acting as the general counsel and when I'm acting as the head of football operations. 
as as the head of a large legal team, when you're employing young lawyers, people, a young Andrew Dillon from 21 years ago applies for a job. Now, we know everyone now has got a CV that uh, you couldn't jump over and they've all got first-class honours degrees and they've all done amazing work before they come. What do you look for in somebody when you're going to employ them? A young lawyer. I'm talking specifically about a young, young lawyer. lawyer. Like with any role, you, there's almost like an assumption because they've done a law degree and they'll have worked in a law firm for a period of time that... They'll be able to do the work, and I don't nec- I don't look at, and others have, but I think I've been able to convince people who work with me that you don't need someone who's actually done exactly what you need them to do. You just want someone who you think, you know, the main thing is you want someone who's going to fit in, and that means be able to not just, but they've got to be able to work with the other lawyers in the team. In particular, they've got to be able to work with the other parts of the business who are, in inverted commas, their clients, and I look for someone who's obviously, you know, not necessarily what marks they've got or what university they've gone to, but where they've worked and what they've done, and the, but more about what the way they've gone about it. So two of the lawyers that we've got with us at the moment were worked in M&A when they were at their law firm. So nothing to do with anything they do at the can, AFL. Can I tell for those who aren't lawyers, oh, M&A is mergers, mergers and, and acquisitions, which has got... We don't do a lot of mergers and acquisitions work at the AFL, but they had, in the interviews with them, they had a, a style and a manner about them and you just knew that they'd be able to fit in and work well with the group. And I think that's really important. I've employed some really, really smart people and they just haven't necessarily worked out for a number of reasons. So I look for someone who's well-rounded. You don't have to have played sport, but I think it helps if you've done stuff outside of work while you've been working as well. I think someone who's well-rounded is always um, helpful as well. What were the issues around bringing new clubs into the competition, the Gold Coast Suns and the Greater Western Sydney Giants. You had to give them concessions to try and get them competitive as quickly as possible, but it was such a uh, partisan sort of a organisation in the AFL. Everybody loves their own team and uh, and doesn't care much about the opposition. What did the existing teams think of all these concessions were given to the Suns and the Giants? It was an interesting process that we went through. So we, we'd made the call, the commission, with the support of the clubs, had made the call to expand the competition and Western Sydney and Gold Coast were seen as the two big growth markets for the AFL from TV perspective but also for participation upside. What we did when we were looking at what are the concessions that are required, we needed the teams to be or wanted the teams to have an opportunity to be successful. Um, so we looked at all of the concessions that had been done previously for Port Adelaide, for Fremantle, and even going back to when West Coast came into the competition at, um, and also Port Adelaide. When we, But the other thing that we did, which we hadn't done, pre- which hadn't happened previously, was we got together a committee that had three or four AFL people on it, but we also got club people involved. So we had people like Andrew Island, who was the CEO of the Swans, Graham Allen, who at the time was the general manager of footy for Brisbane. We had Stephen Wells, who's the list manager at Geelong. So we brought everyone along on the journey and gave them serious input into what was happening and we really listened to them. And everyone bought into the fact and knew that we needed the teams to have an opportunity to be successful. So unlike back in 1987 when the Brisbane Bears came in and every team basically just gave them three cast-off players, the clubs knew that under the draft situation they had to allow the new club's opportunity to get the best young players up there, but also have an ability to get players from existing players from their clubs. And the way we were able to sort of sweeten that and make clubs happy to lose players or not unhappy was then to provide compensation in form of draft picks back. But the key was actually having a sort of a long and detailed consultation process across 
a cross-section of individuals and clubs so that you sort of garnered the support that way. And then we had Gold Coast coming in in 2011 and they were followed the next year after by GWS. So they had slightly different list establishment mechanisms given the different timing of when they were coming in. One out of left field for you, Andrew. It leads on, of course, to the question of Tasmania. Can it happen in Tassie? I mean, it's obviously, it's a small market or 500,000 people or something, and yet it is a heartland of Australian rules football. Is it? Is it? Is it, a, is it a possibility? It's absolutely a possibility. It's a, it is a heartland state and there's a lot of engaged people. Hawthorne have done a great job down there for 20 years and North Melbourne have been playing games for the last five or six. There are the Premier, um, Peter Gutman, is um, sort of leading the charge on behalf of Tasmania. He's had a task force put together a business case that's come and been considered by the AFL Commission. The AFL Commission then got Colin Carter, who's a former AFL Commissioner and also recently um, retired President of Geelong, to have a look at that and consider the task force report. On the back of Colin's report back to the Commission, we've now engaged some internal AFL people to do like the full business case. And we've committed to the Tasmania Premier that we'll have a position on Tasmania by the, hopefully by the middle of next year when we look at a new CBA, Collective Bargaining Agreement for the Players, which sets out their minimum terms and conditions of employment and sets the salary cap, but also, importantly, the funding model for all of the other clubs and works out, well, how are we going to fund the operations of those clubs as well? So by the middle of next year, we'll be have, you know, hopefully have a position on Tasmania, whether it's a 19th licence or potentially a club saying that they'll uh, commit to play a number of games there or potentially the status quo. Andrew, one of the major issues facing AFL, but all contact sports, is concussion, head injuries, which we've seen in recent times with great sadness and tragedy lead to people taking their own lives. Going forward, can you? it's a very difficult issue in a contact sport to balance because We've all grown up watching as a contact sport, liking the fact it's a contact sport, liking the courage it takes to play a contact sport. But on the other hand, we can't risk people's lives. What are you doing to deal with that and and to try to get a good balance there? Concussion is one of the biggest issues, I think, facing, well, definitely the AFL, but I think a lot of other contact sports around the world and seeing lots of issues in the NFL. We, at the moment, like last year, we made two senior appointments in the concussion space. So we hired two senior executives, Rachel Elliott, who's came to us from Monash Health, who's basically going to he- heading up our response to concussion and making sure that we've got a fully strategic response to how we're dealing with it because there's so many different strains to it. And we've also employed a woman by the name of Catherine Wilmot, who's a um, associate professor at Monash University, a world-leading researcher in concussion, and she's working with us three days a week. So we want to be... I think we have been at the forefront of concussion over 20 years. And if there's a timeline, if you look at, we've been involved in concussion symposiums for the last, oh, probably since the mid-2000s when they started and taken on whatever the world guidelines have been at that time. Uh, we've changed rules, you know, changed as we've gone along to, you know, try and discourage head-high contact. And that's something we're just going to have to continue to do. So the, the best thing is actually to prevent it happening as much as you can. And even last year when we had a Hawthorne player get knocked out of training, doing boxing training, just made the call, well, you actually don't need to do boxing. You can do boxing where you're punching into pads, but you don't have sparring. So we've just prohibited that. I think there's there's enough chances where you can have head high contact accidentally playing football. You don't have to put people in harm's way where you don't need it. So 
we're going to have to continue to balance the, you know, the fabric of the game and all the things that you were talking about, Michael, that make it the game that everyone loves, but also balance, you know, the health and safety of the people who are playing at the elite level, but also all the way down to boys and girls or men and women wanting to play at a community level as well. And don't I remember there's some litigation on foot at the moment of somebody who suffered concussion as a player? In fact, I think Richmond's one of the uh, defendants to it, I think, from memory. There's... there's a number of press reports about potential litigation. There, there is a case at the moment involving a Richmond player, former Richmond player, Ty Zantuck, but he's at the moment focusing more on another injury that he had. There was, there's another potential application out of South Australia from an ex-Adelaide player. But other than that, we have some players and we're, we're dealing with them. And once the play, if a player retires from concussion, we look after them as well as we can. But it's, a, it's an evolving science and the health advice is changing and we're just trying to keep at the forefront of that. Are there conversations with other bodies worldwide like the NFL in America, which has got, it's a concussion sport or a collision sport, the NRL in New South Wales and Queensland, Are there ongoing conversations with them about the concussion issue? Yeah, there is. And there was, we actually, the AFL hosted a a virtual conference only four weeks ago, which was of the world, you know, for want of a better term, collision sports. So we had the National Hockey League, the NFL, Australian Rugby, National Rugby League, and also Canadian Football League. And we had the our chief medical officer, our two heads of concussion who were, were running that from an AFL point of view. I sat in that for a bit, as did our head of uh, general manager of legal and regulatory. And all of the other sports have sort of similar structures. So best practice is shared amongst the sports. And that's the way we can all hopefully learn from each other to make sure that if there's advances happening in Canadian football, to see whether they can be shared across Australian football and vice versa. But the pleasing thing for us, I think, is that we're at the forefront and we're dealing with the people who are right at the forefront. So we're in as best a position as we can be. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. Andrew, of course, the biggest issue over the last two years, not just for the AFL but for the world, has been COVID. What issues has it thrown up for you? How have you handled the issues, particularly from a legal point of view, from your general counsel point of view? How did the AFL deal with it? Well, I think, Michael, in the first instance, it's a health and safety issue. So we've what we've tried to do is make sure that we've been getting the best health and welfare advice. So our chief medical officer and then dealing with the medical officers, chief medical officers, in particular in Victoria, but also around the different states. So trying to make sure that we had the right protocols to, particularly in the first couple of years of, you know, 2020 and 2021, to ensure as best as possible that none of the players or the, in particular, the footy staff contracted COVID. And we did that pretty successfully. We only had in the first year Connor McKenna who tested positive to COVID and then still not sure whether that was a, a true positive or whether it was actually a he contracted in Ireland before he came back. And then from there, though, it really began, it's it become a really logistical issue dealing with the different states and their different rules, borders closing. So it's really just been a logistical puzzle that we've been trying to work with. So from a general counsel point of view, it was re- the real focus was on, well, there was probably two parts to it. There was the health and safety aspect And then there was the commercial aspect, particularly in 2020 when we had to stop the season after round one. 
sort of went into abeyance for six or eight weeks and then we ended up with a 17-round season with shorter games. So we had to renegotiate TV contracts, we had to renegotiate sponsorship contracts on the basis of a shorter season because a TV contract is all about content. Um, And at that time, no one was really sure how anyone was going to come out of COVID as well, particularly in that sort of, what was it, May, June of 2020. So that was sort of the legal aspects. And then after that, it was really operational. It was we had our probably five or six smartest people in the AFL working day and night just trying to make sure games got played. In a normal year, you'd set a fixture in November, you'd book all the flights and accommodation in the first week of December and then you wouldn't even think about it. So it was like a day-to-day, week-to-week logistical exercise, like what a lot of other companies have done around Australia. I think just with AFL, it was probably just a bit more public for a lot of people. And I think most people would agree that the AFL made a major contribution to our health and wellbeing by having games that we could watch while we were locked down. Did the AFL take that into account in its thinking that we can make a contribution to our community as well by actually having games being played? I'm not sure it was in our sort of forefront when we were making those decisions, but certainly in hindsight we've become aware that that was helpful and, you know, we were doing it ourselves, like, in Victoria, I was, I'd done four different lots of quarantine and there's nothing better. You know, in particular, I did the two in 2020 and they, they coincided with the times where the fixture had literally an AFL game on every day. So it was something to look forward to at the end of the day. So, yeah, it was certainly in hindsight we were aware of that. But for us it was really important to keep the games going for commercial reasons but also just to ensure that we could get the seasons done. Mandating vaccines is a controversial issue across the whole of uh, Australia all of the states and, and all of our communities. Has the, have you mandated for clubs, clubs, or well, club staff and players that they must be mandated to participate in the AFL system? Yeah, so we released a policy um, a few weeks back and it effectively is a mandate on the basis of the Victorian government's mandatory policy that they've got at the moment. And given 10 of our 18 clubs are based in Victoria and every team's going to have to play in Victoria they will require a vaccine to be able to play in the competition. So on the back of the um, decision of the Victorian government, and that's been backed up by the South Australian government now, in order to enter Adelaide Oval, you have to be vaccinated. I'm not sure Western Australia's got there yet, but I'm pretty sure they will be. And there's different rules, uh, similar rules in Queensland. So effectively, to enable the season to be played and for people to attend training, uh, we've come up with a mandatory vaccination policy. I think we would have got there anyway. I think from a health and safety point of view, it was somewhere where we were going to go anyway. And we've got that for all of our staff who are working in AFL head office at Docklands and also all of our offices around Australia. Mandating vaccines um, has led to Liam Jones of Carlton. Well, we assume he hasn't given a reason, but for personal reasons, he's retired. And I believe there's an AFLW player who has said she won't play because she won't be vaccinated. Are they the only people? Is there any, you know, bubbling up resentment to it? I think, yeah, well, so Liam made the call that he would retire a few weeks back and he's comfortable with that decision at the moment. He's still on Carlton's list and you never know, his position might change. Uh, We've got an AFLW player for St Kilda and there's also another one in Adelaide who have not been vaccinated. And the way our policies worked because the St Kilda players based in Victoria, you know, the, the decision was brought earlier for her. In the AFL men's competition, the clubs outside of Victoria, they, in order to comply with the policy, you have to have your first vaccine by the middle of January. So there may be other players. Um, we're just not aware of them yet. So I was asked when we 
came up with the policy, what did we think it was going to be? And my view at that stage was we'd have a small handful of players and I think that position's the same. And we'll work what we have done and what was really important and our chief medical officer and, and healthcare staff at the AFL did a great job with education for all the staff at the clubs, all the players at the clubs, AFLW players separate to the AFL men's players so that people could ask questions and I think that went a long way to allaying concerns. There were there are a lot of people who are sort of vaccine hesitant and I think having that education program worked really well for us. Andrew, when you talk to young lawyers and students, I guess, sports law is always considered to be very glamorous and a lot of them would love to be working in sports law. If you were talking to one such young lawyer, what would you say to them about how to make a career for themselves in sports law? So I think sports law is potentially a bit of a misnomer because it's really just different areas of law, but the subject matter is sport. So because it can be litigation or it's administrative law or it's commercial law or it's property law, but you're just working for a sporting organisation. When I'm talking to young lawyers about potentially wanting to go in-house, my advice is if you're at a firm, stay there for as long as you can, because I think you learn a lot working, whether you're in a big firm like you know, Allen's or you're even in a you know, small suburban firm, you, you, earn, you learn plenty there. Not that you're done in-house, but I think the wider the experience you can get, the better that it will, you will be in-house. But you can only stay there as long as you're continuing to learn and you obviously you want to be enjoying it. So I just say stay there as long as you can handle it at the firm. And then once you get in, if you do get an opportunity to go in-house, to try and keep your networks of people within firms because it's always good to be able to... Um, get different experiences. And that's the great thing about working in, in a firm because you've got heaps of different clients. Once you go in-house, you sort of narrow your focus often. Do barristers play much of a role with in-house counsel? Do in-house counsel use barristers um, regularly, brief them directly, or is it more go to a firm and then the firm do any briefing if necessary? I can probably really only talk from an AFL point of view, but we have relationships with some barristers over time because we've um, briefed them previously. And also we have barristers that sit on our tribunal and also our tribunal council. So we've got a, there's a number that we will often brief directly, but oftentimes also if we're dealing with some litigation, we'll go through a law firm and then um, brief a barrister through. So we, we do a bit of both. Andrew, thanks for coming in this morning. We all love footy, of course. We could sit here all day and talk about footy and not particularly law. Um, <laughs> but to hear about you with the crossover between uh, the law and football and sport in general, but football in particular, has been a pleasure and most interesting and illuminating. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. I hope the Tigers and the Giants go well for you this year. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links of things talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. Your host is former lawyer and Greenslist clerk, Michael Green. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks, subscribe, rate and review the show. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue this discussion here today.